My guest today needs no introduction, but here we go. I'll try anyway. Sir Kenneth Branagh is with us for his film, Belfast. Belfast could get its own special intro. The film is phenomenal and worthy of all kinds of discussion, and we talk about it in the interview. But just to talk about Kenneth for a second, he is an absolute force of nature. He burst on the scene in 1989 with Henry V, and he has been a mainstay ever since, both writing, directing, and starring in all kinds of movies across genre. There is nothing he hasn't touched upon, thrived with, had interesting takes on. There is no type of performance he hasn't given. He has been as solid and as successful and as impressive as anybody who works in this industry. But perhaps the most impressive thing is his just nature. He is such a kind, down-to-earth, humble-seeming man. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the closing, but I'll let you see for yourself as we talk about Belfast, which is an incredible movie and one worthy of seeing, examining, thinking about really an important movie coming out of this year and this pandemic because Kenneth wrote it during the pandemic. It was inspired by his life. It is his story. It is very personal nature. And it came to him a story he felt he needed to tell while he was sitting there in quarantine. And I think it reflects very interestingly on the global pandemic. It's about the troubles in Northern Ireland as they began in the early 1970s, but it's also about where we are right now. And to me, it's about ultimately the perspective of a child. Not since 400 Blows, or maybe alongside 400 Blows, this is the only film I've seen, and I guess maybe The Bicycle Thieves, where I feel like I'm truly seeing something from the perspective of a child. And it reminds me what the world is like there from that angle. And I think it makes me, as a parent now, a little more understanding. So I think that this is really filmmaking at its finest. And here we go, Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you and to be speaking with you about this film. You're very welcome and thank you very much. I appreciate it. There's so much to talk about with this movie. One of the first things that struck me after seeing it and thinking about it was that it made me feel like I need to become a better parent uh, because, uh. <laughs> because what I realized very quickly is that there's a lot here about how during tough times, we've all seen them recently, the children really look to the adults around them for guidance and absorb whatever's happening. Was this an intentional choice to depict it that way? Was this just truly your experience? Were you aware of, of that and sort of like how that was going to come across and how all the adults performed? Can you tell me a little bit about that? I don't have kids, so I don't have that. I wish I did, but I don't. So I didn't have that direct experience, but I, I did want to go back in time to try and understand what my parents were going through, to try and understand a little bit about this difficult choice that they were making this difficult life that they were trying to lead with one in another country part of the time and this violence happening and seeing how 
once this massive shift happened from a, a very sort of functioning version of it takes a village to raise a child, where I think a lot of informal childcare and a big life on the street happened, you know, because weather was poor a lot of the time, small houses. So anytime you did, you're out in the street. That's where you played. That's where you met everybody. That's how you knew everybody. And when that street, that that safe haven is completely upturn, the ground is lifted from beneath your feet, paving stones are now a barricade, you walk on sand. I think it puts everybody under pressure. So I knew that it would be an interesting thing to go back and try and consider how the nine-year-old version of me saw that. I suppose ultimately, I went into it thinking, I reckon what they did was, uh, what they were doing was the best they could, and Mm. so was everyone else. That's what communicates, but they are so, well, two things. One, I feel like there was a lot of cinematic influence. 400 Blows kept coming to mind. The Truffaut movie, just being in the kid, in the mind, at his level, looking up at things, uh, the playing, and then how you suddenly interrupted the playing with that first riot. Can you tell me about making a film from the perspective of a child? I've never, I've rarely seen it done. That example is the only one I can think of. Like, it must've been a conscious choice, right? The whole way through. For sure. And one of the reasons for it was that the Irish problem, if we call it that, or the troubles is so immense that I knew that I did not want to lead the audience into expecting that I would tackle this subject in its entirety. It's too complicated. And many, many mightier minds than I have grappled with this and and found it's, it's challenging. So I knew I wanted to see its impact at the most basic level. So you could go into a great treatise about, you know, sectarian violence and the history of Ireland. But what the nine-year-old experience is, is that Paddy from two doors down two (laughs) hours ago was okay to play with. And now two hours later, apparently isn't uh, because we've decided we've got to wear badges. And according to your badge, you you know, you can live there or you can't live there. And so that's a big piece of sort of uh, incomprehension. So I tried to stay there with him then try, well, how do you make sense of the world? What has he got? He's got movies. He's got passion for the girl. He's got religion giving, I suspect, dubious advice, you know, <laughs> and he's got, you know, he's, and he's got a football and he's got the example of his parents and his family, do, do, you know, doing what they can. So, you know, most people were trying without, and no one was indifferent to this situation, but, you know, there were lives to be gotten in with, there are bills to be paid, there, you know, there are meals to be got, there's food to be found, there's heating to be paid or or not paid, there's rent to be found or not found, there's sofas to hide behind when the rent man comes or, you know, <laughs> whatever. What you couldn't, as dire as it, as it was, you couldn't suddenly transform into a political animal overnight, you know. There were a lot of grey areas between the two extreme positions and, and trying to negotiate that bit in the middle was what the nine-year-old was doing, trying, his, trying to find his way back to a normality that included some complexity. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, I, I love the way you put it because it kind of leads into the other question that kept get coming to me and watching it. I loved when 
the character introduces himself as Billy Clanton and Frank McClory because I'm a Western fan. And I was like, hey, I know those guys. <laughs> and like suddenly we start seeing Westerns, but it's specifically American Westerns. Like you didn't pick the searchers. You picked the good guys versus the bad guys stuff. You picked mm-hmm. High Noon. You picked, you know, and uh, the uh, John Wayne, the other one. Oh, uh, Liberty Balance. Yeah. Right. Because from the child's mind, right? Am I right that it was sort of like he sees his father and, and good and evil and he's trying to figure out because the troubles are one without that clarity, right? So oh, this is a exactly. fascinating crash of those things. It was trying I mean, to find, well, you know, what are, what are those Western mythologies that allow you to just make it simple? So bad men will look like Jack Palance in Shane. They'll have raven black, silky, oily hair. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll probably have the name of somebody who was at the OK Corral trying to kill the good guys, you know. Right. Um, and and there will be an upright figure, Gary Cooper, John Wayne, whoever it might be, falteringly in Liberty Valance, Jimmy Stewart. And the good guy will prevail and he will get the girl, is I guess what he was trying to draw from that. And sometimes... My father used to say it sort of with a sort of dark irony. You know, there are a lot of cowboys in Belfast. <laughs> the, the sense that we were in a Wild West town was was quite tangible. And did you see your father? I assume the film is you see him that way as sort of this like he came, he stood his ground, he stood for something important, he imparted real values about accepting people who are different and, and things like that. Did did he have that heroic quality? I would say a much quieter version, if you like, and he would be the last one who would ever have sort of trumpeted this. But he, like many people, was trying to do the difficult thing of negotiating an independent line. The forces of darkness were raged against you and forces that were wrapped up in politics and danger and intimidation and violence that were basically trying to get you to join up. To try and find a way to lead a quiet life in the middle was difficult for anybody from from any side. So as one of the characters says to him, you know, uh, in the back alley, he says, we can't all be acting the Lone Ranger. And, <laughs> Another. <laughs> uh, it was, yeah, it was. So I, I think that you did what you could to consider how you walked a line that allowed you to be libertarian, allowed you basically believed in letting people getting on with what they wanted to do or worshipping the way. Certainly what he says to the kid at the end, you know, if she's a Southern Baptist or a vegetarian yeah. antichrist, you name what extremity of difference from us she can be, if they're basically kind, fair, you respect each other, then it's all cool. And he did believe that, but they both did. They both believed that. Well, they'd been living it because they'd been living down the street from people um, who were different religions. And up until August the 15th, 1969, that didn't matter. But it's, you know, it's a powerful message and it's one, it would be powerful to a child. It's powerful to the world today, I feel like. But the way you you get to it, because you didn't hit us over the head with it early, you let it come to him in that final important moment. We don't know the girl is Catholic until then. When you're writing a screenplay, do you know that moment's going to happen? Do you know you're putting this whole thing together? You're using your actual experience. And I feel like to some extent, you're trying to capture what it felt like, not what the facts were. How do you know when you're done? <laughs> with a script like this or ever maybe, but when you're writing it, what, like it's, it's gotta be so hard drawing from yourself and all of that. 
It's an interesting question, the way you put it, actually. The, I uh, gave myself permission because I didn't, in, in starting to write, I didn't necessarily know whether I w- would be able to make it as a film, whether I could make it as a film, whether my brother and my sister, who I wanted to show the script to, would, would kind of approve. I didn't want to make it if they were unhappy. Uh, I hadn't told them I was going to do it. I just did it because I needed to do it. And mm. in so doing it, I tried to not censor myself. I tried to allow this sort of memory mood quality, some of what you're hinting at, a sort of sense of you're creating atmospheres. You're, it's about what it felt like. It's about moments in the boy's life. It's about the from somebody who was going to end up making films. It's about <laughs> the cuts in his own life, you know, the sort of uh, different angles on it, you know. And then so when it comes to, uh, I didn't know until late in the day that the girl could or should be a Catholic, but it, it's of several things I trusted would ultimately make sense. I knew that she was unattainable, and I knew that there was, um, whilst I, I didn't worry overtly about plot, I knew that to some extent the spine of the thing would be in the wake of violence, will they stay or will they go, inspired by something as great as High Noon. You know, mm-hmm. they're on the train at midday, are we staying or going? You know, ticking clock, ninety-minute yeah. film, and so and so that, you, that that kind of thing was quite inspirational. The, the way you describe it, it makes me feel like this movie. We could call it portrait of a filmmaker as a young man, <laughs> because, <laughs> because like the way you talked about the cuts, the hindsight we have is that this boy becomes you. <laughs> so we know he becomes someone who's so versed in story and filmmaking and performing and all these things, and that that that's the way this is all remembered through that lens. It's put together that way. It makes it kind of a fascinating piece. I'm curious, what kind of notes did you get from your brother and sister or what feedback? My brother said, and I said, he said, that didn't happen to you, it happened to me, that that thing. (laughs) But don't you remember that was the thing when you did, he said, no, no, you did that. Uh, so there was a, that, that in a way was a releasing thing. Cause I thought, well, you know, I don't have to be absolutely accurate because clearly we can't be clearly, you know, <laughs> objective truth isn't here. And then my sister said, no, my mom told me that, you know, so-and-so happened. And so there was a, a nice, a nice acceptance. What they didn't argue with, what they liked, what they approved of was whatever you'd call the sort of emotional truth of it. So the feel for qualities, maybe that my parents had, or the feel for qualities, that my grandparents had, they were, you know, very struck by that. It, it had a big impact on Bill. He found it very, my brother, uh, he found it very helpful. He, he went straight to chests of photographs and stuff. He mm. went into a real reverie afterwards. And it was, and actually, I think it's been uh, for him particularly very, it's been a, a, a another way of looking back at a really significant portion of his life. And like for me, we he and I have since said, you know, uh, and I hadn't really realized it when I started this. We never spoke about this as a family. Never talked wow. about pride. Never talked about why we left. Never talked about whether it was difficult to come along. Two reasons. I think the Irish people just they cannot they 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 don't they don't want to dwell. You know, they're anti-indulgence. You know, what about my problems? You've got problems. Why do you need to hear about my problems? You've got your own. They're probably you know just as difficult, sometimes more difficult. So you can't show off. You know, with with your suffering. And I think they wanted totally to commit to the sacrifice and say it worked. We came, as Granny says in the last frame, don't look mm-hmm. back, don't look back. I love you. That's all you need to know. That this is what needs to happen. I think ultimately we were still hurting or we were still we were still wondering. And I kind of wanted to go back to try and understand a bit a bit better. And then yeah, yeah, to understand a bit better. 
the moment where she says it is like heart wrenching. The final, the moments with with the grandfather. I don't know how you do it, and I'm curious if there's any answer you can provide. But reminds me of the warmth, the feeling you have with your grandparents or parents when you're young. That this is a secure knit unit around you. I not everybody, but many of us have. There's something universal you, you tapped into. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know if you can answer that in any way. How do you strive to do that, or do you? Can you even think it's, of it's, a? Well, what I found was that it was easy to write about the jump of generations. My grandparents were very twinkly and childlike with me. They were very naughty. They enjoyed, even though they looked after me a lot, they gave me my lunch every day because I lived, the school was near them and my mother was working in a chip shop. And so they they were totally involved. They were, a lot of surrogate childcare was them. But somehow, but they sort of, they knew they'd done the hard bit of child raising, you know? Mm-hmm. They knew, and so they could be as rebellious yeah. And, and that, of course, was very charming. You couldn't believe that people that old could be that naughty and could be and could be on your side, telling you to do things like you know the stuff about you know. I'm not sure I should be changing, making numbers look ambiguously <laughs> like they could be two things. You know that's probably not right. <laughs> you know that was, that was wonderful. To, you you were bonded when you saw that beautiful sense of irresponsibility in people who looked like they had to be the Mount Rushmore sage. Mm. Maybe that's what is the part of the universal. See, I think you also said seeing the parents struggle, do their best. So I saw, you know, we see our parents. We also, if we are parents, see ourselves as parents, just doing your best. Like, and and kids pick up on that, I think, like with tough times. Uh, Yeah, I think they do. I think they they really do. uh, When, especially when there's no sort of, pretension and when you feel i mean you couldn't when you know the lioness emerges out of that door goes into the middle of a riot picks a kid up and lifts a lifts a dustbin lid and uses it as a shield well you know quite literally she'll do whatever it takes to protect you you couldn't doubt that that person has some very complete sense of your best interest at heart they might make a lot of mistakes along the way, just as you will in the way you receive their support and love, and, and you know, and you may not understand how dependent, totally dependent, you are on them. It's like that fellow behind you there, that doggy, uh, that is like <laughs> sort of the, the unconditional love. You know, they give us such a hard yes. time. You know, they're they're as innocent as anything, and and you know, you know, they've got four things to do: eat, sleep, play. Smart, <laughs> go to the loo, uh, and, and and then ask you for some more attention. <laughs> that is true. He does. Yes, he is. He's making a cameo here. <laughs> you know the other, the last thing I wanted to watch. You know, as a filmmaker, you're directing all these actors. You are um, as an accomplished actor as anyone, and you've done it many times. How do you work with them and a child, which is often something that people consider like one of the great challenges. In the core underpinning, the whole film resting on him, how, do you have any insights into that? How do you direct a child the way you did to this and and work with one? Well, you you try and keep them honest. In this case, we didn't rehearse much. We talked about scenes, but we didn't practically rehearse. We didn't want anything that encouraged anybody to become set. I introduced Jude early on to the idea that even if we did do multiple takes, I didn't want him to repeat things. I wanted him to recreate them. So always go back to what the why for the scene was. Forget about the how you do it. Think about the why. 
And he was very responsive to even slightly concepts like that that were maybe more grown up than he's used to. Is that but something you would do with an adult actor too? Is that something that comes out of even like Shakespeare, like kind of thinking through things on that level? Yeah, I think that you you don't have any that you don't make any difference between high and low art. You don't make any difference between ages. Yeah. No, I think that, and people hear that tone as well. They understand. Hey, he's talking to Judy Dench in the same way he's talking to Jude Hill. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and they're both very cheeky back to him. And, uh, yeah, I think we, we often just try to capture things on the fly. I would say to people, look, you know, when you're in the street, because he loved playing football, Jude, I'll photograph you, you know, sometimes when you're doing that and when we're not doing a scene. So I'm not trying to trick you. And it'll, I'll never put anything in the film that, you know, was embarrassing to you. But we basically, we don't want any acting in this. And we especially don't want any schmacting, <laughs> so, which is the worst kind of acting. And he was, he was very responsive to that. He and the others were playful. They work hard, they prepare. But when you come to the set, the goal is to be open and ready to do what happens there between you, not the bathroom mirror performance. I mean, I'm not surprised, but the nature of the play, the familial bond was so honest um, in those scenes, in those sequences, that, that hearing you describe it, it makes sense, the way that everybody came to it. I'm sure he picked up on that from all of the adults too, right? The, yeah. the way that they were approaching it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yes, he was, he was at that stage in his development where he's a real sponge, an absorbent artist, really picking up everything, including knowing when you could play. So anytime we did fun things like the family playing table football or that kind of mm-hmm. thing, stuff around the opening Christmas presents, all of that. We always had surprises for them. You know, we always, we would do some things to make those scenes have some, you know, he'd suddenly open something in the present that was particularly pertinent to him. And, you know, you get that look of that sort of yeah. excitement in the eyes and everything. And he, he could somehow do that and still stay in the scene. It was impressive. And he could see that combination of playfulness and professionalism that those other lead actors had. And, and yeah, the, the capacity for what Cartier-Bresson, the photographer who's black and white photography, inspired much of the, the look mm-hmm. of the film. He talks about the decisive moment and he could somehow, uh, he, he understood he understood when we were in the middle of one of those or when to take one uh, out yes. of the spontaneity that was around. So he was very responsive, reactive. Half of his performance was always going to be listening. So he had yeah. to have quality of accessing total in the moment presence and receptivity. That's a that's an amazing point. In those moments, you had the other actors delivering and him responding. Did you ever do multiple cameras? So or or was it was no. it always like we're gonna get coverage here? You well, know, how did you capture him listening so often so well? Well, we we just we often we played scenes all in one with all of the actors in it, and we would just block it in such a way as if we needed to be very front and center with somebody, we'd put them near the front of the frame. Sometimes we'd just be very close on him. There's the first scene where he's at the kitchen trying to get out of going to church and he's in a massive close-up. Yeah. And half the scene is played just on him listening to parental, you know, advice yes. and excuses, really. I think we I, were... I feel like you did so much with eye lines and like, you know, we're his height. And then when we look at, you know, dad, we're like under him. And then yeah. we're like through the bars on the, you know, staircase, like all of us have been watching yeah, a conversation yeah, yeah. around a corner of a, like there was yeah. so much you did there that was like, oh, I've been in that spot before watching. I want to ask about, black, this This will be my last one, black and white, you mentioned influences and inspiration. Choosing to do black and white is, is beautiful. I'm grateful for it. <laughs> and probably a challenge to get people to agree. And then yeah. the little places where you use color, 
was it made perfect sense and the why. But can you tell me about what you shot on? How if it was a challenge, the challenge to get to black and white and all of that? Well, the the the, the goal here on this project was not to second guess any creative instinct you thought was true. So black and white was a an uninformed hunch as the main storytelling tool where the graphic nature of the way I saw Belfast, a gray northern city, often raining. I saw it in monochrome. I saw mm-hmm. movies in saturated technicolor in immersive yeah. conditions. So those basic dynamics between every time the kid met art and entertainment, it blew his mind. It psychedelicized his mind, whether it was the theater. Yes. It, could, it couldn't get into the grown-ups. It's reflected on her on her glasses. Like she yeah. bounced it back. But yes. the kid... It just, it, you know, the brain is cooking. And at the beginning, we play the, the color because the opening with modern day Belfast is partly also about saying how far we've come from, yes. you know, a place that was so dark. And in one generation across my lifetime, you know, we went from something that began a 30 years war, 3,700 people lost their lives to a good Friday agreement, which although flawed and imperfect and still fragile, nevertheless has created a peace that was unimaginable and a city that in relative terms thrives. It has all the issues other cities have, but given where we were, color reminds us, you know, that on our way back to that journey, we, we, it's, these stories from so many different people are worth telling, lest we forget. Yeah, that's so well said, of course, unsurprisingly. But that opening, I was like, this almost feels like a like it's a cheerful television program. I was like, what's going on here? And then suddenly, boom, black and white, we're over the hill. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, that was on that was on purpose. Star Trek on TV wasn't in color though, on when he was watching it. That was one that I noticed. That was <laughs> And that was but that was because we we didn't have we didn't have color television television. Right. So every film or anything that was in color came to us in black and white. Right, right. Yeah. I, I was excited to see Star Trek, another one of my favorites playing as an influence there. Well, it, it's funny, years later, there's a few wheels within wheels. Years later, I got to do a play reading with William Shatner. He was a joy. Teased me all day about all the things that British actors do. And High Noon makes it into the film. When I made my first film, uh, Henry V, Paul Schofield, who was in it, asked if he could bring a friend to the set. And that friend was Fred Zinnemann, director of High wow. Noon. So I got to meet Fred Zinnemann on my first film, and I got to include one of his masterpieces in my nineteenth film. So he I got pretty- to he got to visit Kenneth Branagh on a Kenneth Branagh film. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much again for for doing this. It's been a pleasure, and thank you for making this movie. People love it, and I'm so glad. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been great talking to you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Sir Kenneth Branagh, for coming on the No Film School podcast. It is an honor for us. But I just want another word real quickly about Kenneth. You know, I've interviewed so many people. They've all been great on this podcast and gracious and kind to come on it. I have known so many people in the entertainment industry, those that I've worked with, those that I've known personally or through others of all levels of success award winners, famous people, celebrities, whatever. Kenneth reminds me that humility is a really important trait. Whatever success you have in life or in this industry, it seems there is no reason to be pretentious and put on airs. And if Kenneth Branagh is down to earth and humble, what excuse does anyone else have not to be? But even more than that, 
the kindness is palpable. The way he addressed me, the way we talked, the way he was willing to connect, it speaks volumes about who he is as a person. And I want to highlight it because, again, I've known and interacted with many people, and I think that it's a lost art to just be kind. And it's an important quality. And this is not to say that our guests on the show aren't. They almost always are. But there are plenty of people in this industry who are not. People who have a lot less success under their belt than the great Kenneth Branagh. So let's take a lesson from Kenneth and remember, there's no reason to be a jerk. You can always be a nice guy or girl. So thanks again, Kenneth Branagh, for coming on. And thanks for being such a great person. It was really a pleasure. 